The media continue to play offense for Joe Biden. The world goes nuts after a woman kicks off in a men's football game. And Democrats continue to push COVID rules they don't obey themselves. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Today's show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your data online with a VPN I trust. Visit expressvpn.com slash Ben. We're going to get to all the news of the day in just one moment. First, let me remind you that things are still pretty volatile out there. What would have been a smart move like several years ago, taking some of your money and putting it in precious metals? I'm not saying liquidate all of your assets and then buy gold and put that in the refrigerator or something. I am saying they should have some of your money in precious metals so as to diversify, right? This is just a basic investment strategy. How about putting some real silver in your loved one's stocking this year? That's right, because now through December 21st, for every 5,000 bucks you spend with Birch Gold Group on physical gold or silver or investing in your precious metals IRA, Birch Gold will send you bonus silver. It's the countdown to Inauguration Day, which is a great time to pull some of those earnings out of the stock market and solidify those savings through diversification. And given that we have no idea what is about to happen, here's what you need to do. Text Ben to 474747. When you speak to your Birch Gold representative, let them know you want the free silver with your purchase. Even if you're investing in a precious metals IRA, you still get the physical silver delivered directly to your door. Text Ben to 474747. Get a free information kit on diversifying into gold from Birch Gold. They've got that A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Countless five-star reviews. I know them. I know them. working with them for years. We have been working with them for years here at Daily Wire. Again, diversify with the people I trust. Text Ben to 474747. Open that precious metals IRA. Get your free silver before December 21st. Okay, so the media's mission to protect Joe Biden continues apace no matter what he does. It is the most wondrous thing that has ever been done. And again, one of the most irritating aspects of the last 12 years in American life was the media's decision to make itself the lapdog for the Obama administration, then turn around and decide to be extremely aggressive in every possible way, up to and including propagating false information about President Trump. And now they're going to go right back to being lapdogs for Joe Biden if Joe Biden is inaugurated on January 20th. Well, Cliff Levy is the associate managing editor and metro editor of The New York Times. And yesterday he tweeted out, core to The New York Times mission. We will scrutinize the incoming administration just as thoroughly as we did the outgoing one. Oh, will you now? How many stories did you run on Hunter Biden, was it, in the weeks leading up to the election? Um, Don't remember a lot of that. And I I just, I don't trust you. Here's the thing. I don't trust you. When you say that you are going to be on top of the Biden team, I, I, I don't trust you. And one of the reasons I don't trust you is because every few days, the New York Times runs some piece talking about how evil capitalism is in like its style section. It turns out the entire generalized worldview of the New York Times is that the left is right and that the right is wrong. And then they pretend to be objective. And I was thinking about this a lot last night. Why do you even pretend at this point? We all know that if you subscribe to the New York Times, I would guarantee you the number of Republicans that subscribe to the New York Times, it's gotta be less than 10% of their total actual subscription base is Republicans. It can't be 50%. It's probably not 40%. My guess is it's under 10% of the New York Times subscription base. And again, that's speculation, but I would think that it's pretty well well verified at this point uh, or verifiable very small percentage of the New York Times subscription base is actually Republicans or people who vote Republican or think about voting Republican. So why is it that the New York Times insists on its label of objective journalist? Why do they care, right? We're openly conservative because we understand most of the people who subscribe to Daily Wire are going to be conservative. And also, we'd like to be honest with you so you know what you're getting when you subscribe here at Daily Wire. Speaking of which, you should go to Daily Wire right now and subscribe in opposition to places like the New York Times. So why do the media cling, cling to this idea that they are objective news sources? And I think the answer is twofold. One is the self-flattering notion for members of the media that they are doing something of deep and meaningful importance. They are not just political activists, you see. They are of a higher echelon 
They stand for capital T truth. And sure, their opinions and the capital T truth are exactly the same in their own viewpoint, but that's just the charm of the situation is that you get to pretend that your opinions are actual capital T truth and not just opinions. I think there's a second thing here, and that is that that opinion as truth routine is not just flattering to the journalists and pseudo journalists who pretend to engage in it. It's flattering to the audience. All the Democrats who subscribe to the New York Times like to be able to say to their friends that they are speaking absolute truth, that they are not expressing an opinion, that they are simply saying the facts. And how do they know? Because they're quoting the very well-respected and very objective New York Times. Now, here's the thing. It's all crap. We all know it's all crap. We know the New York Times is not objective. We know that their journalists are not objective. They all have a political point of view. If you can find me one Trump voter, one in the entire byline staff of the New York Times, I will give you $100. Okay, I, I am not aware of any, not aware of any, certainly none who have publicly said so, right? If they are Trump voters, they certainly have not publicly said so. That's kind of incredible for the nation's leading newspaper in terms of, in terms of, prop, in terms of yeah, prominence. It's pretty incredible. Here's an indicator of where the New York Times general mentality is. So over the weekend, over Thanksgiving weekend, they ran a piece by Zoe Beery in the style section. And it is titled, The Rich Kids Who Want to Tear Down Capitalism. Socialist-minded millennial heirs are trying to live their values by getting rid of their money. Slow clap for the spoiled brats who inherit a bunch of money from mommy and daddy and then talk about overturning the system that has made not just America, but most of the world not poor. Well done, New York Times. And it's this long puff piece about all of these kids who never generated one iota of wealth now wanting to give away their family wealth and pretend that they are in favor of socialism. By the way, if my kids ever come home and they say, Mommy, Daddy, I'm a socialist now, and I think that all this money is ill-gotten gains. Okay, easy solution, man. You are out of the will. I hope that you enjoy your life without the trust fund. I hope that you enjoy your life living in an occupied tent while trying to pursue a career in lesbian dance theory. Like, really, good on you. Enjoy. But the New York Times touts these kids as the height of virtue because the height of virtue is, of course, never doing any work and then taking all the wealth that your family worked to create through voluntary transactions. We're not talking about Bernie Madoff here. We're talking about voluntary transactions, taking all that wealth and then proclaiming that you are virtuous by dint of the fact that you're against the system that created all of that wealth. So here's the article. Lately, Sam Jacobs has been having a lot of conversations with his family's lawyers. He's trying to gain access to more than to more of his $30 million trust fund. At 25, he's hit the age when many heirs can blow their money on harebrained businesses or a stable of sports cars. He doesn't want to do that, but by wealth management standards, his plan is just as bad. He wants to give it all away. I want to build a world where someone like me, a young person who controls tens of millions of dollars, is impossible. Well, actually, if you want that world, there are still large swaths of the world where there are young people who can't control any wealth. In fact, if you would like to jet set down to Sudan, things are going great for young people who can't create any wealth there. If you would like to head over to China, Young people not doing so well in the wealth department, right? There are plenty of places on earth you can go and be poor, really. And most of them are characterized either by complete anarchy at the top levels of government or by complete dictatorship at the top levels of government. So go ahead, really. You, you are free to leave at any time. You don't have to access that wealth. You can leave that wealth in the trust fund. At any time, you're free to pick up and take a commercial flight to any one of the places on earth where young people are unable to generate any level of wealth, let alone tens of millions of dollars of wealth. A socialist since college, Mr. Jacobs sees his family's extreme plutocratic wealth as both a moral and economic failure. Uh, nothing quite as charming as kids looking at their parents and deciding that they are better than their parents. Really a charming, charming thing. He wants to put his inheritance toward ending capitalism. And by that, he means using his money to undo systems that accumulate money for those at the top and that have played a large role in widening economic and racial inequality. Millennials will be the recipients of the largest generational shift of assets in American history, the great wealth transfer, as finance types put it. 
Tens of trillions of dollars are expected to pass between generations in just the next decade. And that money, like all wealth in the United States, says the New York Times, is extremely concentrated in the upper brackets. Mr. Jacobs, whose grandfather was the founder of Qualcomm, expects to receive up to $100 million over the course of his lifetime. Most of his fellow millennials, however, are receiving a rotten inheritance. Class and inequality have been part of the political conversation for most of their adult lives. In their time, the ever-widening gulf between rich and poor has pushed left-wing politics back into the American political mainstream. Mr. Jacobs, as both a trust fund kid and an anti-capitalist, is in a rare position among leftists fighting against economic inequality. But he isn't alone in trying to figure out, as he puts it, what it means to be with the 99% when you are the 1%. And this article goes on to profile a bunch of these dunderheaded youths. They're not that young, right? But they act like children. Rachel Gelman, a 30-year-old in Oakland, California, who describes her politics as anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, and abolitionist. Her family always gave generously to liberal causes and civil society groups. She supports groups devoted to ending inequality like Movement for Black Lives, the National Day Laborer Organizing Network, and Critical Resistance, a leading prison abolition group. Yeah, good luck with the prison abolition thing. And when it comes time to protect your house, good, good luck for that. She says, my money is mostly stocks, which means it comes from underpaying and undervaluing working class people. And that's impossible to disconnect from the economic legacies of indigenous genocide and slavery. Okay, our country, you know what? You're making the case. Fine. You've now made the case against capitalism. Maybe capitalism generates too much wealth that goes to too many stupid people. And then those people undermine the system. Maybe we're just too wealthy to understand how good we have it. But the New York Times is pushing that stuff. So spare me all the hysterics of the New York Times about how you guys are objective journalists. When it comes to the objective journalistic set, there's a very clear point of view as to what they believe is right and what they believe is wrong. Traditional American systems of free markets and individual rights, those are not among them. Okay, these are not things that they believe are right. Okay, we'll get to more of this in just a second and how it applies to Team Biden, which is now being granted every sort of grace from your establishment media. We'll get to that in one second. First, let us talk about something amazing. Okay, this is really an amazing gift for yourself, for your family. I'm talking about myphoto.com. You can basically take any photo on your phone, right? They're just sitting there on your phone and you can make it into a metal, glass, wood piece, like these beautiful pieces. And it takes two minutes to do it and you get it in five days. It's really, really simple. It comes in a stunning gift box with the holidays coming up. I barely need to do anything to make something personal and special for my friends and family members. Myphoto.com, they've literally made millions of customers' memories come to life forever. You try it, it's really easy. Go to myphoto.com, you just take your photo, right? You take your photo, you send it into myphoto.com and you can see it on all their products and then simply purchase. You use promo code BEN25 today, you get 25% off. I have a beautiful photo in my house, me and my wife on the beach. It took me almost literally one second. I just went to my phone, found the photo, sent it to my photo. I've got an acrylic piece, came in the mail, put it on the mantle. It looks absolutely beautiful. It's glowing. It's wonderful. The only problem is my face is on it. Other than that, it's absolutely spectacular. Go check out myphoto.com right now. Use the code BEN25, get 25% off. You'll see how easy and fun it is. It can actually be addicting because you're just doing it every so often. You just send in a photo, you get back this beautiful, beautiful piece. It is easy. It is fast. Anybody can do it. Go check them out right now. Myphoto.com. You can see your photo on all their products. Use promo code BEN25 today. You get 25% off at myphoto.com. It's a great holiday gift. Go check them out. Plus, I know the founders of the company, wonderful, wonderful people. Go check them out. Myphoto.com. Code BEN25 today for 25% off. Okay, so the worldview of the establishment media extends into their coverage, obviously, of presidential candidates and their teams. So, for example, Neera Tanden, we discussed yesterday here on the program. Neera Tanden is the head of the Center for American Progress. She is not well-liked in Washington, D.C. She has always been known as a rather contentious sort. On Twitter, she has spent her time being really, really nasty to people. And not just nasty to people, she's propagated a bunch of nonsense about the Russian collusion hoax. She has gone after senators. She, she's done all this stuff. Now, 
Biden wants to make her the head of the Office of Management and Budget. After running the organization Center for American Progress in such a way that she was actually the subject of a scandal when she went into a large company meeting and proceeded to name an anonymous sexual harassment alleger. Right? She just went into the meeting and just spilled the person's name. This person wants to be head of the OMB. And Republicans are kicking back against that. Here is the headline from the Washington Post. It is not that Joe Biden has nominated a highly controversial pick who has spent her days on Twitter being malicious as all hell. No, here's the headline, right? It's, all, it's always Republicans pounce. When Democrats do a bad thing, the headline is always Republicans pounce. When Republicans do a bad thing, the headline from your establishment media is Republicans do worst thing that has ever happened, mostly targeting women, minorities, children, and cute household pets. Right? And then if it's Democrats did a bad thing, the actual headline is Republicans pounce. So here's the Republicans pounce headline from Democracy Dies in Darkness, the Washington Post. Biden's pick to lead White House budget office budget office emerges as lightning rod for GOP. Oh, she just emerged as a lightning rod for the GOP, you see. And it's the GOP. Now, that is not newsworthy that the GOP opposes some of Biden's picks. They're the GOP. He's a Democrat. That's not exactly newsworthy. What's newsworthy is, you know, the stuff that she has said that makes her controversial. Does any of that make the headline? Nope. Instead, the subheadline is Neera Tanton, who served in the Clinton and Obama administrations, would face Senate confirmation early next year. Jeff Stein, Annie Linsky, and Sung Min Kim, writing for the Washington Post, President-elect Joe Biden's pick to lead the powerful White House budget office generated early controversy Monday, with Neera Tandon emerging as an immediate target for conservatives and Republican lawmakers. Tandon, 50, has regularly clashed with the GOP in a manner Republicans say will complicate her Senate confirmation process. Several GOP senators said Monday she could run into trouble during confirmation hearings, warning that her partisan background could make it hard for her to win Republican support. Okay, how far do we get into this article? before we actually find out what exactly she has said? Okay, the answer is I am still scrolling. Not kidding. Okay, she has not gone, like, okay, we have to get all the way down to about paragraph maybe 25 here before you get to. Tanzan has a history of more pointed and partisan critiques of opponents than does Janet Yellen or any of the other picks. Her supporters praise her passion and willingness to fight aggressively across a range of policy issues. Tanzan's sometimes adversarial approach appears to strike a different tone than what Biden had promised during the campaign. Tanzan's comments may not be out of bounds within the climate of her party, however. Okay, so they literally don't quote any of the things that she has said about people on Twitter, including backing the Steele dossier. Hey, they, they do not quote her going after individual Republican senators, not anywhere in the article. So you could read the entire article and still not know what is controversial about near Tanzan. Like, nowhere in here are you going to find out what is controversial about Neera Tandon. Like, nowhere in here is there any mention of the sexual harassment allegation situation over at Center for American Progress. Nowhere in here is there any mention of the nasty things that she says on Twitter that have made her rather unpalatable for senators. Because the Washington Post, democracy dies in darkness. Guys, but the good news is the Washington Post style section has really focused in on what is the key issue these days. And that key issue is how Melania Trump is decorating the White House for Christmas. Every Christmas, we get a story about how Melania Trump is basically the, the evil queen from the Chronicles of Narnia, and she decorates the White House in malevolent fashion. So here is the article from the Washington Post, right? They, we, we still don't know anything about Neera Tandon from the Washington Post, but we are going to find out everything you need to know about Melania Trump from her White House decorations. That's literally the title of the piece from the style section. Everything we needed to know about Melania Trump is in those bewildering Christmas decorations. Monica Hess writing. Somebody gets paid to do this. That's pretty incredible. What a great country. It's our final Christmas with Melania Trump, and we shall celebrate in the usual way by accompanying 
the First Lady of the United States on an annual tour of her White House decor, a one-minute video that also appears to serve as trailer for a movie about a woman who wakes up in a castle one holiday season and goes searching for the person who spiked her eggnog with mushrooms. And so here we are, following the First Lady down colonnades and breezeways as she encounters rows of looming, florally festooned evergreens in the manner of someone who has never seen a tree. The decor contains many roses, white lights, and hanging ornaments, airplanes, speedboats, which Melania looks up at and beholds in wonder. There's a painting of a reindeer, another one of a fox. There's an ornament of an American flag and another one reading Be Best, referencing the First Lady's launch failure of a signature initiative. There's a banner celebrating the 19th Amendment, which now comes across as fourth-dimensional trolling, given that the majority of American women voters used their ballots to eject Melania's husband from the White House. What Stellar, stellar stuff here. Just really, really well done, guys. Covering in-depth all this. You know, you know what I needed more of, though? I needed more coverage, personally, me in the media and somebody who follows this stuff closely. I needed more coverage of Joe Biden's pets. How about you? I needed lots of coverage of that. And the Daily Beast is here for you because not only are they covering Joe Biden's pets, they went and they interviewed a pet psychic, a pet psychic, a person who's going to read Joe Biden's pet's mind from afar. This is the party of science, guys. Super sciency. We're going to go talk to a crazy lady who talks to dogs. Sounds awesome. We'll get to that in just one moment. How, I don't understand why you don't trust this objective media. They say they're objective and they're going to cover the they're going to cover this administration, guys. They're going to cover it in their own slobber. That's what they're going to cover it. OK, we're going to get to that in just one second. First. Right now, you're spending too much on your cell phone bill. How do I know? Because you're not using Pure Talk USA, are you? Well, if you're not using Pure Talk USA, you are spending way too much money on your cell phone bill because you're paying for unlimited data. Now, are you using unlimited data? The answer is probably not. In fact, almost certainly not because it's impossible to use unlimited data. But not just that. You're probably not even coming close. What you actually need, what you actually need is not unlimited data. Instead, from Pure Talk USA, you need unlimited talk and text and two gigs of data for just 20 bucks a month. And if you go over on data usage, they don't charge you for it. So you really have nothing to lose. So you could, you could be saving like 800 bucks every single year simply by switching to Pure Talk USA from Verizon or AT&T or T-Mobile. You're not sacrificing coverage because Pure Talk has the same coverage, same bars as one of the big carriers, but they charge you half for it. So get started today. Why are you wasting your money? Grab your mobile phone, dial pound 250, say Ben Shapiro. When you do, you'll save 50% off your first month. Dial pound 250, say keyword Ben Shapiro. Pure Talk is simply smarter wireless. Go check them out right now. Dial pound 250, say Ben Shapiro again. Dial pound 250 and say Ben Shapiro to get started. So that democracy dies in darkness media, they're not just covering nothing about Neera Tandon and everything about Melania Trump's Christmas decorations. They're definitely, definitely covering Joe Biden's dogs. So the Daily Beast over the weekend put out a long piece from Tim Tiemann, senior editor and writer. It is titled, Joe Biden's dogs have told this pet psychic a lot about their beloved master and his future. My God, without this sort of journalism, I don't, I, I don't know how we could move forward as a republic without this sort of journalism. I mean, I, I definitely remember this kind of sycophantic coverage for President Trump never happening ever in ever. But now we have, like, this is a very long story, a very, very long story about a pet psychic. Champ says he needs memory foam bedding to ease problems with his joints. Major thinks he may have dental problems. Both dogs say Joe Biden's troubles with Donald Trump are far from over, but that their master is calm and focused enough to steer America forward is the Daily Beast. The Biden White House has sprung its first leaks, but what can be done when the leakers are the president-elect's beloved dogs and they are communicating telepathically with a pet psychic in the English Midlands? It began when British daytime TV show This Morning provided Beth Lee Crowther with pictures of Biden's two German shepherds, Champ and Major, as a pet psychic who performs animal communication using telepathy and mind-to-mind -mind communication, Crowther from the county of Worcestershire uses 
photographs, or can just be in the same room as an animal in order to begin, she claims, speaking with it. With their pictures, she says she forged a closer relationships with Biden's dog. And wow, did they ever dish about their owner, as well as ramping up of his troubles with the non-conceding President Trump moving into the White House, their master's calmness, and even Biden's plans to govern. Lee Crowther told the Daily Beast, the very first thing I got was they were both very excited about moving to the White House. I had a real connection. I felt that excitement of theirs. They showed me that Joe Biden is very bonded to his dogs and has a real connection to them. They kept showing me that although he has rescued one of the dogs, the dogs feel in many ways they have rescued him. Aww. Aww. And then the entire piece is about how wonderful it is that Joe Biden has dogs. And this thing goes on for, I'm not kidding you, like thousands of words, thousands of words with like wonderful photos of this crazy lady who talks to dogs. It's incredible. Like the, the, It's like a full expose of crazy dog talking lady talking about Joe Biden's dogs. So will she link up? With Major and Champ, pre or post moving into the White House, Lee Crowther laughed. I'm not sure. If Joe Biden wanted me to, I'm sure I would oblige. We will see. I know and believe in their love and devotion to him and Jill, which is absolutely marvelous. I have every faith Joe Biden will do a good job as president because I believe what these dogs tell me. I mean, I hesitate to say typical Biden voter, but uh, also I'm just going to point something out here. If this dog psychic lady were really that good, shouldn't she have like spilled to the Daily Beast beforehand the dog's assassination attempt on Joe Biden? Because he broke his foot playing with the dogs, like the day after this interview. She's not a very good dog psychic. Or maybe she's not the kind of psychic who sees the future. She's only the kind who talks to dogs. Or maybe our media are just complete and utter thoroughgoing garbage. Uh, Maybe all of those things, actually. You know, I'm going to go with all those things. Okay, meanwhile, one of the key elements of the Biden agenda is that he's going to appoint people solely based on exterior characteristics, which is really exciting stuff. He is going to appoint a vice presidential candidate who's black and a woman. Those are actual qualifications, not just a description of the person who's good at the job. He's going to pick Kamala Harris because he was looking for a black woman. He's going to look for certain members of the Latino community to be in his cabinet. There are people who are literally lobbying him, saying you need to have like five Latinos in your cabinet or this is not a representative administration. Remember that time that Martin Luther King had this whole weird thing about like judging people by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin? Yeah, screw that stuff. That's ridiculous stuff. Well, now... There's a real push for Michelle Flournoy for Secretary of Defense, not because presumably she'll be good at the job, but because she is a lady. She's a woman. Right now, I hesitate to mention, but not very much, that Democrats don't actually believe in the concept of a woman, right? That is not a thing, right? A man can be a woman. A woman can be a man. Some women have penises. Some men have vaginas, right? We have been reliably informed by this and of this. And in fact, Kamala Harris believes in all of this gender ideology nonsense because she actually puts her preferred pronouns in her Twitter profile. We saw Joe Biden in an open town hall, say to a mother of a nine-year-old that an eight or a nine-year-old should be able to decide their own gender, which means that he doesn't believe that male and female are actual stagnant categories. They are social constructs. So what does it matter? Anyone on the left, serious serious question. If you can't define woman, why does it matter if a woman is secretary of defense? Well, it matters because, again, you have this, this moral hierarchy in which the most wise and most just among us on the left, they get to randomly shift categories they get to randomly shift the way all of this works on, on a seemingly fluid basis. And if you don't follow them around, then you are cast out into the outer darkness, right? Because they are your moral betters. They are a priesthood. If you don't follow the priesthood of the woke, then obviously you are very bad. So everybody's very excited because Joe Biden is considering a woman for secretary of defense. Rosa Brooks, co-founder of the Leadership Council for Women in National Security, has a piece in the New York Times today titled, It's Time for a Woman to Run the Defense Department. 
Oh, good. I'm excited that Nikki Haley is going to be the new secretary of defense. Oh, you don't mean a woman. You just mean like a Democrat who happens to be a woman. Oh, you mean a certain kind of woman. Or maybe it's Caitlyn Jenner. Who knows? It could be anybody. Right? Like, really? Why not? It's just a woman, right? And, and a woman could be anything. The reason I focus in on this, guys, is because logical consistency is an actual thing that matters. So this piece in the New York Times talks about how Biden needs to pick a woman, Michelle Flournoy. Although she is reported to still be a leading contender, there's speculation that Biden may instead choose one of several men. That would be short-sighted, says this columnist. If Biden nominates a respected and highly qualified woman as his secretary of defense, he would send an important and long overdue message that the Defense Department's old norms and biases were a disservice not only to women working in national security, but to the country. Uh, because that will show that women are welcome in national security, even though they are already welcome in national security and everything. Really, really important stuff there. Really good stuff. Okay, in a second, I want to get deeper into the Democrats' gender ideology because, again, there are no standards. The standards are nearly randomized. They get to talk about women's empowerment when it suits them, and then they get to say women don't exist when it suits them. All right, so on that note, I have what may be the single greatest tweet of all time. Here's the single greatest tweet of all time. It is from Charles Blow of the New York Times, the aptly named Charles Blow of the New York Times, the worst columnist there. Okay, so he tweeted this out yesterday, and it is just glorious. It is a glorious indicator of how little sense gender ideology of the left makes, because the same people who insist that you have to have a female secretary of defense will also insist that female is an arbitrary category that doesn't apply unless you want it to apply to you, which is bizarre and makes no sense and is completely disconnected from science and biology and evolution and everything else that is materially, objectively verifiable. Okay, so here is Charles Blow's glorious tweet. This came on November 22nd. You ready? Stop doing gender reveals. Gender reveals are these parties where a woman knows that she's, sorry, uh, a vagina owner knows that she's having a baby. And uh, sorry, a vagina owner knows that it, he, she, maybe Z is having a ball of cells and there's a biological sex that can be discerned from the biological ball of cells. And then they celebrate that there's a boy or a girl. So we don't want gender reveal parties, says Charles Blow. Stop doing gender reveals. They're not cute. They're violent. Violent, guys. All we know before a child is born is their anatomy. They will reveal their gender. It may match your expectations of that anatomy, and it may not. If you love your child, you will be patient, attentive, and open. Okay, so a couple notes here. One. Gender reveal parties, he says they're not cute, they're violent. So just to get this straight, according to Charles Blow, it is violent to have a party for your unborn baby based on biological sex, right? You see that your baby is a boy and you celebrate by having a real reveal party to all your friends and family, letting them know that you're about to have a boy. That's violent. Taking a curette and carving out the brains of the baby in the womb and then sucking it into a sink, that's not violent, that's choice. Okay, that, again, just to clarify, <laughs> for people on the left like Charles Blow, you are doing violence to an unborn baby by labeling it based on its sex, saying that its gender and its sex are identical. That's violence to the unborn baby. But actually physically murdering the baby in the womb, that is not violent. That's choice. Hmm. Okay, that's just the beginning of the crazy. Then he gets to, all we know before a child is born is their anatomy. Yes, they will reveal their gender. No, gender and biological sex are deeply interconnected. To pretend that these two things 
have no relation to one another is complete idiocy. That is anti all evidence, all evidence. Gender and biology are deeply connected. And to pretend that they are utter, that gender is some sort of free floating social construct that is made up by human beings. It is so anti-biological that it boggles the mind that people are allowed to get away with this in the name of science. He says, it may match your expectations of that anatomy. It may not. If you love the child, you will be patient, attentive, and open. So I have a feeling also that this patient, attentive, open standard immediately dies as soon as a four-year-old declares that they are a member of the opposite sex. At that point, you're not supposed to engage in watchful waiting where you say, okay, we're going to wait and see if you grow out of this. At that point, you're supposed to start calling the kid by the opposite sex name. You're supposed to start dressing a boy in dresses, and you're supposed to subject them to all sorts of ritualistic psychotherapy designed to gender confirm them at the age of five in the opposite sex. Okay, so none of this makes any sense. The reason I bring this up that it makes no sense is because, again, the this sort of gender theory has reached the highest levels of left-wing thinking. This is not a fringe thing. It really is not. Again, Elizabeth Warren, who for a time was considered the front runner for the Democratic nomination, literally said she would have a transgender child approved for secretary of education. Hey, Joe Biden said, that children should be able to transition. They should be able to pick their gender. Right? This is, this is well accepted inside the halls of democratic power, the party of science. And it's being accepted in like on health websites. Okay, Healthline. Healthline, which is a, a kind of WebMD kind of site. Healthline had a piece just the other day called Do Vulva Owners Like Sex is the Wrong Question? Here's what you should ask instead. So um, I, I agree that that is the wrong question. The first question should be, what the hell is a vulva owner? Not a Volvo owner, a vulva owner, like as opposed to like a renter or a leaser. And where do you go to obtain such a thing? Do you go down to your local Walmart? What happens if you wish to return it? But again, to, to disparage being a woman down to the level of just the genitalia, right? That's all femalehood is, is the genitalia. And it's not even that because you don't have to change your genitalia in order for you to be considered a woman. So basically woman means nothing. Okay, that is in and of itself insane. But then the same people who say that being a woman is a completely malleable term and there is no definition of the word woman will say that we need a female secretary of defense. And also that is a historic moment when a woman competes in a male football game, which brings us to this story at Vanderbilt University. We'll get to that in just one second. But first, let's talk about a great podcast you should take a listen to. It's called the True Underdog Podcast. So I happen to love underdog stories. It's one of the reasons that I love sports. I mean, I think that our time here at Daily Wire, it's an underdog story. I mean, we were an entrepreneurial company, started off really small, got really big. Underdog stories can help you become a better entrepreneur. They can help you find the motivation to push forward in life. Raised in a trailer park with no clear path to success, kicked out of high school multiple times, faced with becoming a father in his teens, Jason Waller is the definition of a true underdog. After hearing the words no or you can't too many times, he unleashed the power within and started three successful companies with his most recent venture, Power Home Solar, skyrocketing on a path to becoming a billion-dollar enterprise. Join the True Underdog Podcast as Waller, a four-time entrepreneur of the year, shares motivational tips, inspiring stories, and business-building lessons from the ground up. He shares those life experiences, that of his high-profile guests, to help others better themselves. As Waller would tell you, there's no elevator to success. The climb only happens one step at a time. Let every true underdog podcast be the step that elevates you. Learn about failure. Learn about entrepreneurship. Check out the True Underdog Podcast at trueunderdog.com or anywhere you get your podcast. That's the True Underdog Podcast at trueunderdog.com. Alrighty, coming up, we're going to get to the bizarre gender ideology of the left, which simultaneously suggests that females and males do not exist. And also that it is deeply important when a biological female competes in a male competition. But first, if you are not already a Daily Wire member, now is the time to join. We've got some unbelievably cool stuff coming right around the corner. So 
starting this Friday, December 4th. The Michael Knowles Show, God help us, is going five days a week with more content for our members to enjoy. Also, we are adding the entire PragerU catalog to dailywire.com by the end of the year. We've already uploaded all of PragerU's five-minute videos, the Candace Owens Show from PragerU, and Michael Knowles' book club, and the rest of the library is being added as we speak. Also, early next year, Candace is joining the Daily Wire here in Nashville. She'll be launching a brand new Daily Wire show in front of a live studio audience, the first thing like this on the right ever. We're launching our first feature film, too, under Daily Wire's upcoming entertainment channel. I've seen it. I'm an executive producer on it. It's kind of awesome. It's kind of awesome. We're getting into the space the left does not want us to be in. We're getting into culture. We're building a new investigative journalism team to replace the legacy media cartel as well. We are ambitious this year, and we need your help. So go outside the narrative. Come on over to dailywire.com slash subscribe. We are loud, we are opinionated, we are having a good time, and we are changing the nature of the debate. With your help, you want to fight back against the legacy media, no better way to do it than join us here at Daily Wire. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe today. If you haven't ordered them yet, check out our Daily Wire Christmas ornaments. Yes, that would be all of us, the Daily Wire host, plus God King Jeremy Boring, as Santa's adorable elves. Yes, even I, the Orthodox Jew, made out of painted metal. So ornaments. I don't have all that much to say about them since I am a Hanukkah celebrator, but I've been told they are both amusing and shiny, so they are going fast. Get yours right now. Text CHRISTMAS to 83400. Check out our ornaments today. Text CHRISTMAS to 83400 and check out those ornaments today. You're listening to the largest, fastest-growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. So, as I keep saying, there is this bizarre idea on the left that both gender does not exist, it's a social construct, and also that it is deeply, deeply important in every possible way. They have the same feeling about race. Race is a social construct that doesn't really exist, which, again, I think there is more content to that than there is to the gender idea, right? Because the lines between races are, are actually somewhat malleable. Uh, there is actual crossover between races. Uh, the vast majority of differences between races can be chalked up to cultural differences rather than innate genetic differences. Skin color is mostly just skin deep, almost entirely just skin deep. That is not the case with men and women. There are obvious biological differences, and that has impact in a wide variety and ranges of life. It exists in every culture across humankind, and male and female are the biological predicates for all of mammalian species, right? For all of procreation, males and females different in every mammalian species. Okay, so at the same time that they are claiming that gender is a, a free-floating social construct, they will suggest it is very, very important for women to break barriers by, for example, competing with men, right? So men can compete with women if they say they are women is the idea. But also if a woman competes with the men, it is important that she maintain the fact that she is a woman so that we know that she can break the barriers. Okay, none of this makes any sense. Which brings us to the, the heroism of Sarah Fuller. Now, Sarah Fuller seems like an amazing athlete. Okay, she's a way better athlete than I will ever be, obviously. Right? She was the soccer goalkeeper for Vanderbilt University. And she played in the, uh, she played in the Power Five over the weekend. And she was named the special teams player of the week. And she kicked a squib kick to start off the second half of Saturday's game against Missouri. Vanderbilt lost the game 41 to zero. So I'm not sure, like, that's nice. Okay. I'm not sure why that is like a major achievement for women. It seems like major achievements for women would generally be like a major achievement for a man, but a woman did it. It wouldn't be like, she did a thing that a man did, but not as well as a man. And therefore, it's a major achievement for a woman to do a thing that a man could do, but not nearly as well as a man would do it. Like, that, that's not a major achievement. Right? A major achievement. She's, she's an amazing athlete. She's an amazing women's soccer star. Okay, that is not the same as being, like, amazing on the men's team in football. That's not the same thing. And it's not a major achievement for a woman to do something that a man could do in a men's game and not do it, like, amazingly well. So she, But affirmative action applies when it comes to the way the media cover these things. 
The SEC announced her as the special teams player of the week. Fuller made history. She became the first woman ever to officially take the field during a football game in a major conference football game. Now, she didn't actually like take a tackle. It wasn't like J.J. Watt like went right at her right, and tackled her because that would be incredibly dangerous. But the announcement says she took the opening kickoff of the second half against the Tigers as her perfectly executed kick sailed 30 yards and was down at the Missouri 35-yard line. Okay, um, so I... Um, so, 30 yards? I mean, better than I could do. I mean, I'm just going to keep saying that because that's where Twitter goes. Like, well, she's better. Yes, granted. She can kick the ball further than I can. I also did not aspire to play on the Vanderbilt football team, nor do I have the physical capacity to do so. Let's just show film of this kick. The greatest kick, apparently, of all time, like in all of history. Here she was kicking off the second half for Vanderbilt University. And this was the great historic moment for which she won the special teams Player of the Week Award. Um, kick down at the 35-yard line. That did not sail. That was not. Um, Happy Thanksgiving. So it's a squib kick. What a day. Right, it's a squib kick. What a day in college football. What a day. She kicked the ball. No one is anywhere within 1,000 yards of her. She kicked it maybe 25 yards and then it bounced like another five. And um, what a day. Huge, huge step for women. No, see, I think big steps for women are like, you know, I'm just going to say this. My wife does more for women and for women's empowerment than Sarah Fuller kicking a ball on a men's football team with no chance of actually playing. I mean, I'm sorry, but like kicking a ball 20 yards and having no chance of being tackled is not exactly like what we mean when we think of people playing football so much. I mean, like that's that's nice. She's a soccer player. She's a great. Why is it not enough for her to just be a great soccer player? I don't understand. Okay, my wife, who is a doctor and has three children, that seems like more of a groundbreaking thing for women to do is to be a doctor, right? Because women can be just as great as men at being a doctor. But to treat this like this was like an amazing performance is kind of incredible. Okay, the the other person who won the uh, who won the special teams player of the week was Kadarius Tony. Um, and uh, I just am, I, I want to look up what he actually did last week. Okay, so he actually scored on a punt return. Okay, so that, that seems like more important than not kicking a football all that well in a game that you lose 41 to zero. So he earned special teams player of the week, co-special teams player of the week for the SEC. He returned to punt 50 yards, which ended up being the uh, touchdown that gave the Gators a 14-10 edge at halftime. He also scored a passing, rushing, receiving, and punch punt return touchdown in a career. That was the first punt return touchdown since an 85-yarder in 2018 for the Florida Gators. Um, on the year, he has 45 receptions for 541 yards and seven touchdowns. That's slightly more impressive, I think, than kicking a ball like 20 yards and having no chance of being tackled. But again, people are like, well, but yes, but it's groundbreaking for a woman. Okay, if you have to add for a woman, it's not groundbreaking. Seriously, because you're demonstrating that the woman is not playing on the same level as the men. If you have to have, that was a great performance for a woman. It would have to be a great performance for a man in a man's sport for it to be truly groundbreaking. Okay, but that's not where the, the absurdity stops. So apparently, Sarah Fuller, I'm not kidding you, gave a halftime speech to the team. It was going to Joe Kinsey at OutKick. ESPN reporter Courtney Cronin jumped on a Zoom call to chat with Fuller about her time on the Vandy football team. And that's when we learned that Fuller was given the floor to address her fellow football players. If I'm going to be honest, I was a little pissed off at how quiet everybody was on the sideline, Fuller told Cronin. We made a first down, and I was the only one cheering. And I was like, what the heck? What's going on? 
And I tried to get them pumped up. And I was like, you guys need to start cheering your team on. My main thing was during the SEC tournament, my entire team was cheering the entire time. It didn't matter if we were in the locker room or if they were on the sidelines. I think that's what won it for us. Everyone was cheering nonstop. I just went in there and I said exactly what I was thinking. I was like, we need to be cheering each other on. This is how you win games. This is how you get better, by calling each other out for stuff. And I'm going to call you guys out. We need to be supporting one another. If we get a first down, if an interception happens, it's our fault. We need to be lifting each other up. That's what a team is about. I think this team has struggled. And that's been part of it. Okay, she's been part of the team for 32 seconds and she kicked a squib kick. Okay, first of all, it is not a perfectly executed squib kick. Okay, I just... You don't have to be a football expert to understand when a squib kick is used. A squib kick is used at the end, usually of the first half, when you are just trying to run out the clock and you don't want to see somebody run it back. You never use a squib kick when you are down 1 million points at the beginning of the second half and give field position to the other team, 35-yard line. Anyway, okay, but she's been on the team for like half a second and she's lecturing all the male players about what a winner she is in a completely different sport with women. That is not effective. I mean, can you can you imagine the temerity of that? Seriously, like the, just the absolute gall of that to walk into the men's football team. These guys, by the way, are getting crushed out there, right? Not just like they're losing. They're getting physically mauled out there because that's what football is. These guys are going out there and getting stomped on. You got linebackers who are getting bruised up and you get this woman walking in the front door. She squib kicks at 20 yards and she's like, I think that you guys are losers. I th- and you know what? I'm gonna lecture you about how to be winners. And the way that we can be winners is by cheering each other on, guys. We're going to cheer like there's no tomorrow. We're going to cheer. And that's going to bring the entire team together. Female empowerment. She says, I hope I gained their respect. It wasn't ill intentioned at all. I just want this team to succeed and do well. So, uh, do you, uh, mm-hmm. okay, so again, a few notes. One, Jason Whitlock has noted that, um, that she was practicing all week long. She didn't try a field goal because the team didn't score the entire game. But, her longest field goal, I believe she says, is 38 yards, which is great for any person who is not a male football player in an SEC team, right? If you're in the Power Five, you got to be able to kick more than a 38-yard field goal. Any, in any case, the Vanderbilt coach came out and said that the kick went exactly where it was supposed to. And also, I didn't want to overcoach her. I don't think there was a chance of that. I don't think it was like if you overcoached her, she was going to squib kick at 15 yards. Here was, here's the coach, who, by the way, now has no job. He was fired because his team stinks. We tried to go with the most naturals, the, the, the most natural kicks, like in her arsenal. Um, tried not to, you know, you know, overcoach her, but let her, you know, do and understand, you know, uh, what what felt comfortable to her. And that's really what we went with. Um, and, and I thought she punched it exactly where she needed to punch it. Um, balls down 35-yard line. Let's go. Um, so that was the, – the, normally you don't actually build like an entire play-calling situation around a kicker who only kicks the ball about 25 yards. Like that's, that's normally not what you do. So can we stop pretending that this is like some great historic breakthrough for women? Women are not going to be populating the power five anytime soon. Wake me when a woman is playing quarterback for a power five team or linebacker or wide receiver or cornerback or anything that is not a kicker who, if they were a dude, would not be on the team, obviously. Also, I just, I just got to point this out again. The differences between men and women are very real. And this actually underscores that there are differences between men and women, because if there were no differences, then she would not be on the team, obviously, nor would she win SEC co-player of the week with a guy who ran back a 50-yard punt return okay, for University of Florida. Anyway, it, the, the halftime speech really gets me. It really does. Because again, it, it again betrays the difference between men and women, differences that are very real. Okay, one of those differences is how men talk in the locker room versus how women talk in the locker room. So women, when it comes to halftime speeches, 
apparently, according to the book Top Dog, which is a, an excellent book by Poe Bronson and Ashley Merriman uh, about the science of competition, talks about how men and women are motivated by different things, right? Because men and women are not exactly the same. I know this is very controversial stuff because, again, we're supposed to simultaneously believe that men and women are exactly the same, but also they are not exactly the same. So it's historic when a woman plays in a man's game. So in any case, they are not motivated by the same thing. So she's on the sideline like, why aren't you guys cheering for each other? I want more solidarity. I want more team spirit. None of that motivates dudes. None of that motivates dudes. That is not how dudes get motivated. Dudes get motivated by Al Pacino in any given Sunday screaming in people's faces and telling them that they're acting like pansies. So get out there and prove that you're not a pansy. Women are motivated by solidarity. They're motivated by compassion. These are things. Okay, so you know who says this? Not me, because if I say it, then it's very bad. Anson Dor Dorrance, who is the UNC women's soccer coach, Right, like one of the great women's soccer coaches of all time. He coached the men's team at UNC, University of North Carolina, and then he coached the women's team. And here's what he said. Quote, the single best, this is from Top Dog. The single best example of how Dorrance coaches women is in his halftime speech. When he coached men, Dorrance's best ever halftime speech was when he got so mad, he kicked a trash can through a window. I drove that sucker through a window and I stormed out, he recalled in The Man Watching. Let me tell you something about human, human evolution. That spoke volumes to the men in the room. In the second half, everything changed. All of a sudden, we had great energy, tactics, shape, and the game totally turned around. Some men, he feels, need shock to wake them up. Top men are so used to competition that even being on the losing end at halftime is not shock enough. But he would never treat women that way. As Dorrance said, quote, if they've played poorly, you still come storming in like a caged tiger. But because these are women, they can sense immediately that you're upset. The critical thing is tone. You turn to face them and you calmly say, well, what do you think? Now you can hear a chorus of self-flagellation as every woman in the room is taking full responsibility for the disaster taking place. I haven't criticized anyone. I don't need to because they're their own worst critics. And now when the halftime talk ends, they're willing to die for you because all you've done is support them. Okay, so again, I, I love that she comes in and she's like, I'm going to turn this male team around by lecturing them about togetherness. And all the guys are like, what is this now? What is it? But men and women, exactly the same in every possible way. Proof that they're exactly the same is that we put a woman on the field and celebrated her and had... Today's show interviews with her and talked about how historic it was when she kicked a ball not all that far in a game that her team lost by 41 points. So well done, everybody. Gender ideology making zero sense every single day, every single day. OK, meanwhile, it is time for the election update. So quick election update for you. So last night, Arizona certified its votes. Uh, the Doug Ducey, the governor of Arizona, uh, he announced that the vote had been certified. And uh, here is what that sounded like. The votes have been tabulated. All 15 counties have certified their results. In addition to certification, with Senator-elect Mark Kelly winning the general election, I will be signing official documentation today that will be hand-delivered to the Secretary of the United States Senate so that Arizona's newest senator can be sworn into office as swiftly as possible. So naturally, Doug Ducey received inordinate crap from a lot of people, including President Trump, who tweeted out, why is he rushing to put a Democrat in office, especially when so many horrible things concerning voter fraud are being revealed at the hearing going on right now? And then he hashtagged OANN. What is going on with Doug Ducey? Republicans will long remember. And then last night, he also retweeted, why bother voting Republican? From another account, uh, this guy had tweeted out, watching the Arizona hearings and then watching Governor Ducey sign those papers, why bother voting for Republicans if what you get is Ducey and Kemp? Trump retweeted that. Well, I mean, the pretty obvious answer is so that the socialists don't win. John Ossoff, who's running in Georgia, has stated openly that he is embracing Bernie Sanders. 
according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Ossoff's embrace of Bernie Sanders highlights shift for Georgia Democrats. Three years ago, when Ossoff was running to flip a Republican-controlled suburban Atlanta House district, the Democrat likely would have sidestepped a question about Bernie Sanders. Now, he says, I welcome his support. His advocacy for ensuring that health care is a human right in this country, for putting the interests of working family over corporate interests is welcome, is necessary, is appreciated, and so is his support. Both Ossoff and Raphael Warnock are wild leftists, both of them running for the Senate. The reason that you vote in those races is because those races are not fixed, okay? They are not fixed. If they were fixed, John Ossoff would not have trailed David Perdue by about 100,000 votes in the account that happened in Georgia. Doug Ducey put out a thread about the situation in Arizona. He says, I've been pretty outspoken about Arizona's election system and bragged about it quite a bit, including in the Oval Office, and for good reason. We've been doing early voting since 1992. Arizona didn't explore or experiment this year. We didn't cancel election day voting as some pushed for. We weren't going to disenfranchise any voter. In Arizona, we have some of the strongest election laws in the country, laws that prioritize accountability and clearly lay out procedures for conducting canvassing, even contesting the results of an election. We've got ID at the polls. We review every signature, every single one on early ballots by hand, unlike other states that use computers. Prohibitions on ballot harvesting, bipartisan poll observers, clear deadlines, including no ballots allowed after election day. The problems that exist in other states simply don't apply here. I've said all along, I'm going to follow the law. The law says that the Secretary of State, in the presence of the governor and the AG, has to canvass the election on the fourth Monday following the general. That was yesterday. He says that can only be delayed if counties decline to certify. All 15 counties, Republican and Democrat, certified their results. The canvas triggers a five-day window for electors to bring a credible challenge. He says now's the time to do it. If you want to contest the results, now is the time to bring the challenge. That's the law. And so I've had to follow the law. Ducey is not wrong about that. Now is the time to bring forward the evidence, not speculation, actual evidence, or nothing is going to change. Okay, bottom line is either something's going to change or nothing is going to change. And right now, unless evidence is brought forth in places like Arizona, nothing is going to change. Remember, Trump would need to win Georgia, Arizona, and Pennsylvania, all states in which he's been certified as the not winner right now, as it stands, in order to take the election. Okay, meanwhile, time for your quick COVID updates. Okay, it's COVID time. So apparently, there are now two vaccines that are heading to the FDA for review. Setting scientific speed records, according to the Washington Post, the federal government could begin distributing two coronavirus vaccines in the next few weeks. Moderna filed Monday for emergency authorization of its COVID vaccine, capping a scientific sprint that began in January. Moderna's two-dose regimen is about a week behind a similar vaccine developed by Pfizer and uh, BioNTech. So apparently that means that millions of doses are going to go out in the next couple of weeks. Approximately 40 million doses of two remarkably effective vaccines could be available by the end of the year, enough for 20 million people to receive full protection. The Moderna vaccine actually didn't just show 94.1% effectiveness. Apparently, in lowering the severity of the disease, it showed 100% effectiveness, which is just amazing, amazing news. Anthony Fauci, director of the NIAID, he said, you don't want to get ahead of yourself and claim victory. This has the makings of a very, very important positive impact on ending this outbreak. By the way, it is true that this thing could have been out weeks earlier if it were not for the FDA. If it were not for the FDA holding up the process, this thing could have been up. It could have been out a couple of weeks earlier, which would presumably have saved some tens of thousands of lives, given the trajectory of the virus right now. So this is obviously very, very good news as it currently stands. The Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, he announced that the vaccines are going to be shipping within 24 hours. It'll ship within 24 hours after FDA approval, and then really it's going to be up to our nursing homes, our hospitals, our pharmacies to get that dispensed. So it really could be within within days of FDA approval, we'll start seeing vaccines in people's arms, which is frankly incredible. Think about this, 10 months into right. this pandemic hitting our shores, thanks to what President Trump has done here, we believe we're going to have people getting vaccinated, millions of people, 
before Christmas this year. It's just unheard of in the history of public health, this accomplishment. I mean, it is an amazing, amazing accomplishment. Meanwhile, Anthony Fauci announced yesterday that he thinks it's a good, a good idea for kids to go back to school. I just want to point out here that the follow the science crowd, if they'd been following Anthony Fauci when it comes to schools reopening, he's been all over the damn place. I mean, all over the place. Seriously, like some of us have been saying there's no evidence that schools should be closed as early as like April or May. And I was an early adopter of the schools should be open. Kids are not transmitting this thing in mass numbers and schools are not major vectors of transmission. Kids are safe from the virus, particularly elementary school kids. But here is just a brief montage of Anthony Fauci flip-flopping all over the place about whether schools should be open or closed. This is why you place your faith in any one public figure and it is likely to be disappointed. I know that we've decided to make Anthony Fauci the saint of COVID because he opposed Donald Trump from time to time. But um, the idea that if you followed Fauci, you would have been taking a consistent line is just not true. Here is Anthony Fauci since March talking about various positions on school reopenings. We have to start uh, implementing both containment and mitigation. And what was done when you do closing the school is mitigation. If you have a situation in which you don't have a real good control over an outbreak and you allow children to gather together, they likely will get infected. We don't know everything about this virus. And we really better be very careful, particularly when it comes to children. I think we better be careful if we are not cavalier in thinking that children are completely immune to the deleterious effects. There may be some areas that the level of virus is so high that it would not be prudent to bring the children back to school. The default position should be to try as best as you possibly can to open up the schools for in-person learning. If you're in a situation in, the, in a green zone where you have a very low level of infection and test positivity, that in general, you can open the schools with impunity. Close the bars and keep the schools open is what we really say. Okay, that was him, like March, April, May. Again, the point here is that if you followed the quote-unquote science, then you would have had a consistent position since April. There'd been no major outbreaks from schools anywhere on earth for elementary school kids, anywhere on earth, and they were open throughout Europe. And yet Fauci was all over the place on this thing. Never put your trust in one single public official. It is always, always, always a mistake. That is particularly true when you're talking about elected officials who create rules. The incentive structure on COVID is completely screwed up at this point. I mean, utterly and completely screwed from beginning to end. Because if you're a public official and you've created this panic about COVID, that millions are going to die from COVID, that your chances of death are incredibly high, basically no matter which sort of pre-existing conditions you have, no matter your age, if you've created that level of panic, then the incentive structure is that you're supposed to lock things down. What happens if you've already locked everything down? What if you're LA, LA County, and you already locked down all the indoor dining? And you, did, you did it like two weeks ago, and the spike is continuing because nobody can control this thing. And you've created this outsized panic about how millions of people are going to die. The health system is going to be swamped. Right now, by the way, there's still healthcare capacity. Millions of people are not going to die in the United States from COVID-19. A lot of people have died from COVID-19 in the United States. They're almost entirely people who have had fairly significant pre-existing conditions. Johns Hopkins University did a study. They found that of the people who have died of COVID-19 who are on Medicare, which means everybody above the age of 65, essentially in the country, of all the people above 65, that's the bulk of the people who have died from COVID-19, of all those people above the age of 65, the number of people who are otherwise healthy, who didn't have other pre-existing conditions, who died of COVID is 2,500. According to Dr. Marty McCarrick, it's out of 267,000. Doesn't mean the virus isn't more dangerous than the flu. It is more dangerous than the flu. And it's particularly more dangerous than the flu if you have pre-existing conditions. Right? It's not really even if you're elderly. It's more if you have any sort of serious pre-existing condition like obesity, not just your overweight, obesity, or if you have renal failure, or if you have heart disease, 
right? Not just hypertension, but like serious heart disease, right? These are things that are going to complicate, obviously. But the media have done an extraordinarily poor job of bringing you the information. So this sets up a system where politicians are basically benefited by shutting things down. So Gavin Newsom was again warning that it was time to shut down more of the California economy. I can't, I, I'm so happy I'm not in that, that horror-stricken state. This Ken doll of a human talking about shutting down more of the state. LA County shut down outdoor dining. There is no evidence outdoor dining is a vector of transmission. Here is Gavin Newsom threatening this stuff. I mean, at least when he's not at the French Laundry eating indoors with California Medical Association officials. If these trends continue, we're going to have to take much more dramatic, arguably drastic action, including taking a look at those purple tiered counties, the potential for a stay at home order for those regions in purple because of hospitalizations and ICUs to make determinations of deep purple moves uh, in those purple tiered status uh, that is more equivalent, more in line with the stay at home order uh, that folks were familiar with in the beginning of this year. So they're going to lock you in your house. Really exciting stuff out there in California, unless you're one of the unless you're one of the elite. Right. Then if, if you're Gavin Newsom, again, go to the French Laundry. Best thing I saw yesterday was some local restaurant had put up a sign in L.A. County that said the French Laundry Outdoor Patio, just over its normal sign. Because, <laughs> of course, Gavin Newsom had eaten at this very expensive $400 a plate dinner at the French Laundry. By the way, it's not just Gavin Newsom. According to NBC Bay Area, San Jose mayor ignored health protocols during holiday celebration. Why, there's a shocker. Turns out the Denver mayor did the same thing, by the way. Denver mayor was like, we got to shut this thing down. No traveling for Thanksgiving. I, however, will be visiting my parents, right? Andrew Cuomo tried to do the same thing. He was like, nobody visit your parents over Thanksgiving. Also, also, my mother is coming. She's coming out here. I got mom out there and I got my kids. They're all coming in. We're going to hang out together. We're going to swap spit. It's going to be great. And then he was like, maybe I shouldn't have said that. So now San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo appears to have broken health protocols in celebrating Thanksgiving with family members outside of his own household. The NBC Bay Area Investigative Unit has learned Licardo celebrated with his elderly parents at their Saratoga home with an unknown number of other guests. While the mayor's staff did confirm the dinner took place, they haven't disclosed how many other people attended, how many different households were present, and whether any of those in attendance wore masks while not eating. This is a private event, not public, said Jim Reed, Licardo's chief of staff. Oh, is it now? So the same public health officials who are like, rat on your neighbor if you see they're having dinner with their parents. They're like, this is a public, this isn't a public event, it's private. Jim Reed, Licardo's chief of staff, said, we are going to redraw the line between what is personal and what is public because that line has become blurred. So good times there with Sam Licardo. Meanwhile, how is L.A. County using its federal COVID relief funds? Get ready for this one. This is great. Emily Zanotti at Daily Wire reporting. L.A. County used millions in federal coronavirus relief dollars meant to help struggling Californians stay afloat during extended pandemic-related economic lockdowns to fund no-bid contracts with two PR agencies who recruited celebrity influencers to help spread coronavirus messaging on social media. A local media investigation revealed LA County has extended agreements with two PR firms hired to guide the county's COVID-19 messaging and is using federal CARES Act money to offset part of the cost of their contracts, which now total $2.9 million. The contracts were no-bid. They were first inked back in early 2020. The county has now extended those contract. Apparently, the PR firms can hire celebrities to convince the public of the importance of COVID abatement measures. Apparently, the county defended the expense. They said expanded activities, including response to hundreds of requests each week from media partners, creating and disseminating new culturally and linguistically appropriate educational materials daily 
through various communications channels and participating in dozens of briefings each week, each week to provide information and respond to concerns. So yes, they hired like Instagram influencers to tell you to put on a mask. And they did that with taxpayer funding. Solid, solid stuff. By the way, uh, the LA County supervisors, you know, they're the ones who voted to shut down the, uh, the outdoor restaurants. This is Fox LA reporting. Just hours after LA County Supervisor Sheila Cool backed to, uh, voted to ban outdoor dining at LA County's 31,000 restaurants over COVID safety concerns, she visited a restaurant in Santa Monica where she dined outdoors. No, no, that'd be impossible. Cool was seen dining outside at Il Forno Trattoria in Santa Monica, an Italian restaurant near her house. When Fox 11 investigative reporter Bill Malugan stopped by the restaurant to ask about it, managers said they didn't want to get involved but had no comment. A spokesperson said she did dine al fresco at Il Forno on the very last day it was permissible. She loves Il Forno, has been saddened to see it like so many restaurants, suffer from a decline in revenue. She ate there taking appropriate precautions and sadly will not dine there again until our public health orders permit. So she's just sneaking it in right under the wire because as we all know, COVID obeys public health rules. So really, really solid stuff. Speaking of hypocrisy, so the the, the greatest governor in America, Andrew Cuomo, that guy, um, he uh, he said yesterday that it was a nightmare, that COVID was spiking again, and that they were facing a nightmare scenario in New York State. Here was uh, Andrew Cuomo talking about it yesterday. We lived this nightmare. We learned from this nightmare. Uh, and we're going to correct for the lessons we learned during this nightmare. If we hit a real hospitalization crisis, uh, we could potentially do a New York pause. California just did a California pause, which is basically a stop uh, or move one zone to another if we have a critical hospital situation. Okay, meanwhile, uh, you know that briefing that he's doing right there? Um, Cuomo and his aides, I have a picture of it. He's in a, a closed room with uh, nobody wearing a mask. Yep, solid stuff, according to the New York Post. Governor Andrew Cuomo crowed to reporters that his push for mask wearing helped curb New, York, New York's COVID-19 cases, while his tone-deaf panel of aides sat in the closed room without ever putting their masks on. What worked in the spring, and the reason you're wearing a mask today, is because we told the truth and New Yorkers responded, said the governor. Mm-hmm. Cuomo was not wearing a mask at the time, nor were his five top aides on the dais, including State Health Commissioner Howard Zucker and SUNY Chancellor Jim Alatras. The governor's spokespeople, photographer, and state trooper detail had masks on, so did all the reporters. His, panel of, his panel's flaunting what would seem to be no-brainer precautions comes after CDC has warned on its website, there's evidence under certain conditions people with COVID-19 seem to have infected others who are more than six feet away. He was speaking most of the time in Monday's presser. He and his people were six feet apart, but the room is so tight, journalists have been limited because there's not enough space. I mean, just amazing, amazing stuff. Again, the rules don't apply to the specials. They don't apply to the special people. Also, in breaking COVID news, remember that time that it was very bad to label the, uh, the Wuhan virus the Wuhan virus? You weren't allowed to talk about it? Well, now, CNN, which suggested that it was xenophobic for you to talk about the fact that this virus started in China, they have a large-scale report from Nick Patton Walsh titled The Wuhan Files, leaked documents reveal China's mishandling of the early stages of COVID-19. Quote, a group of frontline medical workers, likely exhausted, stand huddled together on a video conference call as China's most powerful man raises his hand in greeting. It is February 10th in Beijing, and President Xi Jinping, who for weeks has been absent from public view, is addressing hospital staff in the city of Wuhan as they battle to contain the spread of a still officially unnamed novel coronavirus. From a secure room, about 1,200 kilometers from the epicenter, Xi expressed his condolences to people who had died. Here's greater public communication. That same day, Chinese authorities reported 2,400 new confirmed cases. 
raising the total global number to more than 40,000, with fewer than 400 cases occurring outside mainstream, out of mainland China. Yet, CNN can now reveal how official documents circulated internally show this was only part of the picture. In a report marked internal document, please keep confidential, local health authorities in the province of Hubei, where the virus was first detected, listed a total of nearly 6,000 newly detected cases on February 10th, more than double the official public number of confirmed cases. The larger figure was never fully revealed at the time. It seems to downplay the severity of the outbreak. The previously undisclosed figure is among a string of revelations contained within 117 pages of leaked documents from the Hubei Provincial Center for, Sen for Disease Control and Prevention, shared with and verified by CNN. Taken together, the documents amount to the most significant leak from inside China since the beginning of the pandemic and provide the clear first window into what local authorities knew internally and when. Uh, this is my favorite sentence. You ready? The documents provide no evidence of a deliberate attempt to obfuscate findings, but they do reveal numerous inconsistencies in what authorities believe to be happening and what was revealed to the public. I, I think that's called a deliberate attempt to obfuscate findings. But if you actually know something is going on and then you don't want to reveal it to the public, that would be obfuscating your findings by definition, would it not? The documents reveal what appears to be an inflexible healthcare system constrained by top-down bureaucracy and rigid procedures that were ill-equipped to deal with the emerging crisis. The documents show evidence of clear missteps, point to a pattern of institutional failings. One of the most striking data points concerns the slowness with which COVID-19 patients were diagnosed. Even as authorities in Hubei presented their handling of the initial outbreak to the public as efficient and transparent, says CNN, the documents show that local health officials were reliant on flawed testing and reporting mechanisms. A report in the document from early March says the average time between onset of symptoms to confirmed diagnosis was 23.3 days, nearly a month. China has defended its handling of the outbreak, but of course, they, they, they would, right? I mean, they're, they're a communist tyranny. They didn't just make mistakes. Okay, they, they covered everything up because, again, this is a communist tyranny. We now have evidence, by the way that uh, the Wuhan virus was present in the United States as early as December. That is some new evidence that is emerging today. And the world got more optimistic data than reality. China kept telling people that there weren't that many cases, but uh, there were a lot more cases than that. And they kept saying that uh, fewer people were dead than the number of people who were dead. They wildly reported the number of daily dead. So just really solid stuff there from, uh, from China. But don't worry, the WHO is on top of it. And it's very bad to mention that this was a China-based virus. Just terrible. They were, China and CNN were busy blaming Trump for all of this. And so it's only now, you know, after the election, that we hear about the China flu again, uh, when, it, as it turns out, it was, in fact, the Wuhan flu all along. All righty. We'll be back here later today with two additional hours of content. Otherwise, we'll see you here tomorrow. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Andrew Clavin Show, The Michael Moles Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. Thanks for listening. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Colton Haas. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producers are Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Production manager, Pavel Wydowski. Our associate producers are Nick Sheehan and Rebecca Doyle. The show is edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Nika Geneva. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. Hey everyone, it's Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. How did the news industry turn into an empire of lies? It got taken over by the upper classes, and the upper classes are asses. We'll talk about it on The Andrew Claven Show. 
We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 